Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of Grace Point Church in Atlantic, Iowa. My name is Don McLean. I'm the senior pastor here at Grace Point. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can check us out at gracepointatlantic.com. And in the meantime, grab your Bible and check out this week's sermon. You may be seated. And please turn in your Bibles, please, to Jonah chapter 3. Jonah chapter 3. There's Nancy to be reading, starting verse 10. Jonah chapter 3 verse 10 when God saw what they did how they turned from their evil way God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them and he did not do it but it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry and he prayed to the Lord and said oh Lord is not this what I said was when I was yet in my country that this is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish? For I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, O Lord, now please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it to come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? The word of the Lord. Nancy. Before I begin, I'd like to give a short uh, reminder that Don, Pastor Don, will actually be off of sabbatical starting tomorrow. So he will be back in the office, and you no longer have to listen to me, which may be a blessing. I don't know. Um, Also, before I pray us in, I'd like to thank our sound team who made sure the remote was up here for me because I forgot last week and I forgot this week. So thank you guys. Let me open us in prayer. Dear Lord, thank you so much for your word and that you have given it to us, that from it we may know you and may know so much more about you. Um, Help us to open our ears and our hearts 
to listen to you and what you are telling us more fully that we may grow closer to you. We're thankful for you and everything you have done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So as I began, I'd like to ask, have any of you seen one of those posts on like Facebook or maybe Instagram of something where people are like doing dog shaming? Sometimes you see it with like baby shaming too. Right, they post a picture of a dog after it's done some like shameful act and they put a sign next to it saying what he's done so you can laugh and the dog usually doesn't look like he cares all that much about, about what they're punishing him for. Well, kind of as we look through Jonah, I kind of feel like we're seeing Jonah shaming. Um, so let's look at a couple of my favorite dog shaming photos I found this week. All right, so this first one, you probably can't read that sign. I'll read it for you. It's, it's I ate my mom's shoe for breakfast and I enjoyed every moment. Uh, this next one's really apt considering the last couple of years. I ate the toilet paper during a pandemic. I still can't believe that toilet paper was the commodity that we decided to hoard, but we do need toilet paper. I'll give you that. This one's a double. Um, the rabbit peed on his bed. He ate the rabbit's kale. Not sure which came first, the, the, the chicken or the egg on this one. Uh, another one, I eat everything as he proceeds to eat his shame sign. Uh, this is a good one. I think any of y'all who have had dogs have maybe experienced something like this, hopefully not this bad. Um, I locked my parents out of the car while it was running, and when they were writing the $80 check to the locksmith, I rolled down all the windows so I could get a better look at what they were doing. And if you haven't noticed so far, I've used a lot of golden retrievers. Not all. They are my favorite dog breed. If you have one, I want to meet it. Um, but I love dogs in general. So here's our last one. It's a double with the goldens. My humans call me Hugo. My human calls me Huxley, get down. Huxley, drop it. Huxley, I'm serious. Stop it. Huxley, be gentle. Huxley! <laughs> now, right, you might be wondering, why dog shaming? This last chapter of Jonah... And honestly, like the entire book uh, kind of seems like we're profit shaming. Um, but really, the purpose of Jonah, I think, is to point out our misconceptions about what we as God's chosen people are called to do and to point out the vast difference between us as fallen man and an infinitely holy God. All right, it's not just the same shame Jonah but it's to have us reconsider whether or not we are doing things the way that God intended or just the way that we feel comfortable. All right, so today, I'm going to hold up some signs to shame myself, to shame all of us, and to shame Jonah as we go through this chapter. So our first shameful sign is that I decide what is right and what is wrong. I even brought a sign. You can imagine me holding this sign as myself because I'm certainly guilty of all the things I'm saying we're all guilty of. You can imagine it as yourself. You can imagine me as Jonah, whatever, but I decide what is right and wrong. And we'll see if I can actually get it to stick to the pulpit. It worked in rehearsal. That doesn't always mean it works in reality. I'll start here at uh, chapter 3, verse 10, the beginning of our reading today. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, 
and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry, and he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah's first response to God showing mercy to Nineveh is to become enraged. Because how selfish is Jonah? He would rather this entire city, this entire nation to die than for God to show them any mercy. And from verse 2, it's clear to us that Jonah knows that God is compassionate, kind, and merciful. At verse 2, we read, And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. What doesn't quite make sense to me is Jonah's hypocrisy. Jonah, as a prophet, had run away from God and from the calling that he had been called to do. Right, good God could have just killed him right then and there when he disobeyed. God had showed Jonah compassion, and God was merciful to Jonah. Instead of stopping him and killing him for disobeying, he saved him and set him on the correct path. Right, and if God can show this mercy to Jonah, then why can't Jonah show it? To the Ninevites? Or why can't God also show mercy to the Ninevites? Well, like I said, Jonah believes that he knows what is right and what is wrong rather than the Lord. Right? To Jonah, the Ninevites were undeserving of mercy. They were a cruel and wicked people. And I'd say looking at Jonah's character through this entire book, I'd have to look at Jonah and go, so are you, dude. In all actuality, right, the issue with Jonah is the issue with all of Israel and is also the issue with us. Israel constantly wanted to be like the nations around it, just like we constantly strive to be like the non-believers around us and the culture that's around us. They had an arrogance of being God's chosen people group, but they didn't do anything with it. They didn't go and proselytize about their God to the nations that surrounded them. They did what I'd say many of us Christians still do today. How many of us have ever said or heard Helen say, well, they'll know I'm a Christian by the way I act and the way that I'm different. Right? The Israelites said and thought the same thing. They'll know God because of how we're different and how he will bless us for being obedient. The issue is, the Israelites weren't obedient. They weren't different. They were always trying to be like the nations that surrounded them, just like we're often like the non-believers in the culture that surrounds us. And that plan didn't work for the Israelites, and it doesn't work any better for us. 
Right? We have to be active in our attempt to share the gospel with others. Right? Jonah's selfishness reminds me again of the parable of the prodigal son. You might remember back in our second week, I had compared Jonah to the younger son in the parable, and I named him the prodigal prophet. But today, I'm reminded of actually the other son in the parable, right? rather, than the, rather than the younger prodigal son. All right, if you're unfamiliar, it's in Luke chapter 15. You might want to turn your Bible to it. I will read a little bit from it, but I'll summarize the beginning. All right, in this parable, a man has two sons. The younger son asks for his share of the inheritance, an inheritance that he will eventually get when his father dies, but he wants it now. So you can kind of imagine the kind of message he's sending to his father there. Why aren't you dead, Dad? I want my money now. His father does give him his inheritance. He leaves home, and he squanders all of it. And after he does so, a famine arises in the land, and he has to become a servant to someone else. While he's a servant, he's tasked to feed the pigs, and he finds that he is jealous of the pods that the pigs get to eat because they have more food than he has. Like, has an idea. I'll go back to my dad, and hopefully he will at least accept me as one of his servants because they eat better than I currently do. He does just that. He returns to his dad, asked to be back, taken back in as a servant, but instead his father rejoices. Right? He rejoices that his lost son has returned to him. Right? He gives him a robe. He gives him a ring. He gives him shoes. He has the fattened calf killed and prepared and throws a celebration. Right? Because just as God and all the host of heaven celebrate and praise when a single lost soul turns to God, so does the prodigal son's father. But after, the older brother takes issue with what's happened. And this is where we'll pick up in Luke chapter 15. This is verse 25. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found, just like the Ninevites are here. And we can see clearly how Jonah is like the older brother now, right? Nineveh has repented and turned towards God, but Jonah, like the older brother, is upset with God for celebrating and being merciful. I can imagine Jonah pounding on his chest, look what I have done, but you've never celebrated me. I'd have to look at Jonah and just say, be honest, there's not a lot in your book that you are worth celebrating about. 
right? And Jonah is even worse than the older brother because he is also the younger brother. He takes the spot of both brothers in this parable, right? As a prophet, he had an important role for Israel, and he still ran from God. In this whole situation, he was never obedient to begin with. Disobeying God's command was his MO. Jonah ran away. He didn't care about the sailors who were fearing for their lives because of him. To his credit, in chapter 2, he writes a pretty good psalm. I will give him that. But then he finally makes it to Nineveh. He kind of begrudgingly gives a curt message about how they'll be destroyed. He doesn't even mention God in his message. But now that they have repented and turned to God, right, repented of their wicked ways, he's so mad that he would prefer to die. Now, this doesn't just describe Jonah. It also describes us sometimes, right, because we have been shown so much mercy, grace, and compassion by God but we're also unwilling to share that with others around us, right? In our refusal to share the gospel with others, are we also trying to tell God that we know what is right and wrong? We think, well, this person isn't a Christian, so why should they be saved? Well, they can't be a Christian until they've heard the gospel and are saved because of it, right? Like Jonah We are judging people by a standard that we can't judge them by. You cannot expect people who do not know Jesus to act like him because us who do know Jesus don't act like him ourselves. This is why we're called to share Jesus with those around us. Unfortunately, we don't know who the elect are. We don't know who is going to respond to the gospel when we share it. It would be really cool if everyone had a tattoo on their hand, or a weird face tattoo that told you this person's elect, they're going to receive the gospel when you share it with them. But God didn't make it that way. Instead, he called and commissioned us to share the gospel and to make disciples of all tribes, tongues, and nations. And maybe we need to start with our own. So like Jonah, we need to stop pretending like we know what is wrong and right for God to do and instead simply obey the tasks that he has called us to do, right? That removes us from our first sign. Let's go to our second. That's that I decide who deserves God's grace. Try to hold that up for you for a second. And we'll see if this one attaches to the pulpit as well. We'll start our reading at verse 5 here in Jonah chapter 4. Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down upon the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? He 
He said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. The Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in the night and perished in the night. Jonah is still angry about what the Lord is bringing about. Instead of rejoicing in the Lord's mercy over Nineveh, he leaves the city and decides to set up camp for himself to watch and see what will happen. My assumption is that Jonah still expects and hopes for Nineveh to be destroyed. Or at the very least, some kind of judgment will still come. I imagine him thinking, Maybe only the people that heard me repented. Maybe I I built up how many people it was in my head. Maybe the city will still be destroyed. All right, but just like with Nineveh, the Lord is merciful in verse 6 to Jonah and creates a plant to come and build shade for him. Jonah is able to rejoice at this mercy that God has shown him, but he still can't rejoice in the mercy that God has shown to the lost Ninevites. Right, throughout the book, Jonah has shown zero concern for the safety or the salvation of the Ninevites or the sailors that he dealt with before. Right here, like Lot's wife, he wants to see the city be destroyed, like Lot's wife wanted to turn and see the destruction of Sodom. He's still upset and angry about God showing mercy. And now he gets to be upset and angry because God has taken away his shade so that he couldn't just sit there and happily wait for this destruction to come. Throughout Jonah, he's been constantly wanting to die. From his running away originally to hoping that he'll be cast overboard. Seinfeld, that's cool. Um hoping to be cast overboard, he's hoping to die just so he doesn't have to preach to the Ninevites. How much contempt does he have for them? So now twice in this chapter, he's stating it's better for him to die than to live. How can he be so angry about God's grace? And now God is showing some judgment on Jonah for his spiteful attitude. How self-serving and ridiculous is Jonah? Now, Jonah is not the only prophet to have ever felt this way. He's not even the only prophet to ever felt this way after seeing the great power of his sovereign Lord, right? Elijah, who's probably the greatest of all the prophets in the Old Testament, also struggled with this. In 1 Kings 18, Elijah faces off with the 450 prophets of Baal. Right? They're on a mountain, and they're trying to prove who is the true God over Israel. And so they set up their sacrifices and wait for one to be burned. Prophets of Baal go first. They spend a few hours. Nothing happens. Then Elijah is like, all right, it's my turn. Calls to his God, and immediately his sacrifice is burned up. The people recognize the Lord as God and slaughter the prophets of Baal. Yet even after seeing Israel turn away from Baal and back towards the Lord and seeing the Lord act upon his request, he becomes depressed. And in 1 Kings 19, he, like Jonah, states that it's better for him to die. I'm going to start reading it. 1 Kings 19, verse 4. 
but he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time, touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. Elijah in his struggle essentially gets one of those Snickers commercials. Elijah, you're not you when you're hungry. Have a Snickers, maybe take a nap as well. To be fair to Elijah, I understand because I also get hangry, right? My stomach was growling, and I, I don't know who brought donuts, but thank you. That made me less hangry this morning, right? But to be honest, Elijah and Jonah's wish for death come from very different places, right? Elijah is fearing for his life because Queen Jezebel has already killed most of the prophets, And she probably isn't too happy now that the prophets of Baal have been killed and people are turning back towards the Lord. Jonah, on the other hand, is just upset that Nineveh is not being destroyed. He can't sit in his shade comfortably to watch it hopefully happen. We, too, have seen grace and mercy from the Lord. As we look upon the non-believers around us, right, that we know and we judge them and don't share the gospel with them, we are forgetting the grace that the Lord has shown to us, right? Because none of us are deserving of salvation. Not anyone in this room, not me as a pastor here at Grace Point, no one. Right? Because we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And yet he still showed grace and offered us salvation while we were still sinners and enemies to him. You know what? We are still sinners today. Right? Thankfully, God doesn't see it that way because in being saved, he has chosen to forget our sins. But we still sin, each and every one of us. We are just as hypocritical as Jonah. But even so, Jesus came. Jesus didn't need to empty himself to come in the form of man. He didn't have to come to a broken and fallen world, just like Jonah went to a broken and fallen Nineveh, and just as we live in a broken and fallen Atlantic, or Iowa, or the U.S., or the entire planet. But Jesus did do that. Did he come for those who were already sinless and perfect? No, because if if that was his plan, he wouldn't have come at all because those people wouldn't have needed it, right? He came for the lost. He came for the sick. He came for the hurt, and he came for the broken, right? And that's who we all were before we knew Christ, He showed us that grace when we didn't deserve it. So why can't we show it to those that we don't tell about Jesus? Why do we hide it from the people we know and love? 
let's move on to our third sign for Jonah and ourselves. I get to decide who receives salvation. That's essentially how Jonah feels. This is probably how we feel sometimes when we don't share it with others. Let's read the last verse in all of Jonah. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? Now, what's interesting to me is that there are only two books in the entire Bible that end with a question. And both of these books talk a lot about Nineveh, right? Obviously, we just read Jonah is all about God's providential plan to bring salvation to the Gentile people in Nineveh. I'm sorry, I forgot to hang this one on the pulpit. Let me go ahead and give that a shot. The other book is Nahum, which is all about God's judgment upon the wicked people of Nineveh. Interesting. Now, Nahum took place about a little over 100 years after Jonah. So it can be clear to us that the descendants of Nineveh did not continue to pursue after the Lord. But the culmination of this whole chapter is that Jonah thinks he gets to decide who receives salvation and who doesn't. This isn't Jonah's decision. It's not your decision. It's not my decision. It is God's, and it is God's decision alone. He is the one who is sovereign over everything, including salvation and who is the elect. And when Jesus speaks about the sign of Jonah in Matthew 12, he talks about Nineveh and their place compared to the time he was living in. In Matthew 12, 41, Jesus speaks to the Pharisees The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. For the Pharisees who heard this, this would have been a double insult. First, just the hint that the religious elite would be judged on the day of the Lord would be incredibly insulting to them. I think the Pharisees would have been thinking, we follow the law perfect. We follow the law so good, we make extra laws to follow, and we make other people follow it too. There might be some issues with that, but that's how religious and great we are. Second, they would have thought, well, salvation is for the Jews. So Nineveh, being a city-state of Gentiles, being able to rise up and judge the Jewish elite of the day would be incredibly insulting. The Pharisees were not a fan of Jesus going and preaching and healing and performing miracles. They weren't a fan of him doing it to the Israelites. They certainly aren't a fan of him doing it to the Gentiles, right? Because they don't want to see the Gentiles be put in a place of honor that they themselves don't have, right? Because the Pharisees were all about being in places of honor. But they clearly missed out on this teaching of the book of Jonah, right? That salvation is not for the Jewish only, right? Jonah's mission to the Ninevites is only a shadow of what Jesus called his followers to do in the Great Commission. 
But like Jonah, the Israelites had failed in their calling to be a standout people. And we fail at this too. They had failed in making the Lord famous above all else. They had not received blessings for following him correctly and being obedient to his commands. In Ezekiel chapter 5, the Lord speaks about Israel's failings. This is Ezekiel 5, verse 7 and 8. I'll have another reading from Ezekiel if you want to go ahead and turn there. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you are more turbulent than the nations that are all around you and have not walked in my statutes or obeyed my rules and have not even acted according to the rules of the nations that are all around you, therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I, even I, am against you and I will execute judgments in your midst in the sight of the nations. Right, it's not simply that the Israelites had failed to obey God or to pursue him wholly. Right, they hadn't even lived up to the standard of the nations that surrounded them. Right, they continually pursued after the idols, the sins, the culture, and the other gods that were part of the nations that surrounded them. when they decided to disobey him, right? When he was directly their ruler, they had rejected him and they asked for a king. When he warned them what would happen with a king, they still demanded a king and so he gave them one. What did their king do? The kings rejected the Lord and chased after the gods of the other nations. Right, the Israelites chased after Baal, they chased after Asherah, they chased after Molech, they chased after Dagon, they chased after Ashtoreth, they chased after Chemosh, and they chased after so many other gods and idols of the nations around them. Right, and the gods that they chased after are not even the gods of a singular people group. Right, these aren't just, it's not like all the Canaanites so chased, like, worshipped these gods, right? But all the different nations had their own. So some belonged to the Canaanites, some belonged to the Philistines, some belonged to the Moabites, some belonged to the Assyrians, some belonged to the Babylonians. But the fact of the matter is, is that these other nations did not chase after the gods of the other nations. They kept their own national gods, but Israel did. They didn't just chase after the gods of one other nation, but of all of them. Right? They weren't satisfied just to whore themselves out to Baal or just to Molech, but they had to seek every god from every other nation. And that is why they utterly failed to bring glory to God and why judgment had to befall them. And this is why later in Ezekiel chapter 14... We, get to, we read about the future destruction of Jerusalem and that few will be saved. Ezekiel 14, 14. And even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, they would deliver but their own lives by their righteousness, declares the Lord God. Right, Noah, Daniel, and Job, great men of the faith, would only be able to save themselves but no one else. And here I'm reminded of the destruction of Sodom again in Genesis 19. 
Shortly before God judges Sodom, Abraham tries to intercede and asks if God would relent if 50 righteous people are found. God agrees. If 50 are found, I will not pursue judgment on Sodom. And then Abraham starts to haggle his way down. What about 45? What about 40, 30, 20, 10? But 10 are not found. Only Lot's family is found. Based on what happens later, I assume Lot's family was spared solely on Lot's account. But here we learn that even these great men, Noah, Daniel, Job, would only be able to spare themselves, not even their families. Yet here in Jonah, the vast, wicked, evil history of the Assyrians, an entire metropolis is saved. 120,000 people. And why is that? Right? Because they don't continue to ignore the Lord's warning like the Israelites and the Judeans had. Maybe even like we do. Right? Jonah had these same warnings. God had sent many prophets to Israel and Judah about their wicked ways, but they would not turn away. But he sent only Jonah to Nineveh and the entire city repents in sackcloth and ashes. Only one prophet had to be sent to Nineveh to make this great difference, not like the plethora that were sent to Israel. Yet we too, knowing the Lord, being his chosen people as believers, also fail to follow him. We also fail to do as he commands. We also fail to repent we still fall into sin, right? We fail to do what he has called us to do. But we have received direct revelation from God through his word in scripture, right? We have the benefit of hindsight to know what happens to those that disobey the Lord, right? Now we need to become like Jesus and become obedient, right? We have been called and commissioned for a work We are to spread the gospel and to give glory to God and to God alone. How are we doing at that? Now, as I close out my last sermon on Jonah, I want us to think critically about how we are like Jonah. How we run from God's calling and commission to spread the good news about Jesus about the reasons we refuse to do so and what we need to change in our thinking to be able to do it better, right? This whole summer, we have heard from our global partners here at Grace Point about the work that they are doing out in the world each and every day to bring about the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Here we are living relatively easy and comfortable lives in comparison to our global partners And we're not sharing the gospel with the people we see and love every day. Why? What is it about the people that we know that has made us hesitate in sharing the gospel with them? What does it say about our love for them if we refuse to tell them about Jesus? What does it say about how we think about others deep down in our hearts when we refuse to do this? 
Now, some of you might be asking a different question, right? You might, you might be asking, why haven't my friends and my loved ones shared Jesus with me? Well, here's what I want to tell you. We are all fallen and broken, including us who know Jesus, and we fail, and I'm sorry for that. But I want you to know that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Right? And in our sins, we have separated ourselves from God. None of us are deserving of salvation. But because of God's great mercy, grace, and compassion, he has given us a path to salvation. Right? God sent his one and only son, Jesus, and Jesus came. Jesus became fully man. Jesus perfectly obeyed God's law for us. Because of that, Jesus was crucified on the cross. You can see up there. And he became the perfect sacrifice for our sins. And he bore the punishment that we deserve on the cross for us when he died. And on the third day after he died, he rose again from the dead, and he defeated sin and death. Later, after appearing to the disciples and to the multitudes, hundreds of people, he ascended into heaven and is currently reigning on the throne. Jesus will return, and he will overcome the world. I have a warning for you. Judgment will come to those who do not believe in him and trust in him as their Lord and Savior. Now, he has offered us a path away from that. So I would implore you to confess your sins to him and to repent of them. Right? Turn away from your sins and towards Jesus, doing whatever is drastically necessary to remove sin's temptation from your life. Put your faith, hope, and trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior. Now, if you want someone to walk you through this, please find me after the service. There's nothing I love more than to share about Jesus with you and help set you on this path. Now, to those who already know Jesus, I want to remind you of what we have been called to from the Great Commission in Matthew 28. Jesus told his disciples, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray. Dear Lord, Help us to better obey what you have commanded us to do. Help us to better love our neighbors and our willingness to spread and share the gospel with them. Help us to listen for you and to study your word and to know you more. Help us to overcome our own hip hypocritical ways that we just read about in Jonah. Help us to realize how we are similar to Jonah and how we need to be different. Help us to continue to love others and to love you. We're thankful for you and all that you have done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.